This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Uh, hello and welcome to this RAND Congressional Briefing. I'm Wynne Burkle, uh, Director of the Office of Congressional Relations for the RAND Corporation here in Washington, D.C. And it's my pleasure to introduce Jordan Fishback, who will be briefing today on Adapting to Climate Change on the Coast, Lessons from Louisiana for Federal Policy. And he'll help answer quest the question, uh, what can be done to reduce the chances of widespread disaster when the next Sandy hits? And with that, let me stop talking and turn it over to Jordan. All right. all right, thanks very much, Wynn, and uh, thank you all for being here today. Good afternoon. Uh, as Wynn said, um, I'm going to be talking today um, about uh, climate change adaptations on the coasts, and specifically, uh, I'm going to talk about a, a several-year effort that we conducted to support the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority of Louisiana in developing its 2012 Master Plan for a Sustainable Coast. All right, so just a little bit of background before we dive in. Um, uh, as you probably know, uh, the population of U.S. coastal counties uh, is large and growing rapidly. Uh, coastal counties have grown more than 45 percent since 1970. Uh, that's about 1.2 million additional people each year, uh, which is like adding three Miamis to the coast every year. About 164 million Americans now live in coastal watershed counties. Note that includes the Great Lakes. Um, and um, at present, current estimates suggest that over 8 million people live in, in areas that are at immediate risk to coastal flooding. Now, overall, um, in addition to people, there's also, of, of course, a lot of our wealth concentrated on the coasts. Uh, we generate over half of our GDP in these coastal watershed counties, 58%. Um, there's about a trillion dollars of, of uh, infrastructure and assets um, that would be at risk if sea levels were to rise two feet from where they are today. And specifically along the Atlantic coast, uh, almost 60% of the land uh, within three feet above, or about one meter above, um, uh, current sea levels uh, is planned for further, uh, for further development. So additional development will be there um, in the coming years. Now, of course, we also have other important strategic assets along the coast, military facilities, ports, power plants, refineries, oil and gas infrastructure, water treatment plants, um, as well as many uh, productive ecosystems, um, including Louisiana and elsewhere, that provide tourism, fisheries, and other key benefits. So overall, um, given this uh, you know, aggregation of, of people and, and wealth along the coast, um, climate change is expected to dramatically uh, increase uh, risk in terms of uh, threats to the, the health and safety of people and um, putting more property at risk in terms of damage and destruction. Um, again, as I said, this is a combination. This is due to a combination of uh, more, more and more people moving to the coastline, um, rising sea levels, uh, the loss of wetlands and coastal features, which can serve as a first line of defense against these types of coastal floods, um, as well as what the climate science currently suggests could be possible changes in the patterns of storms, including potentially more intense coastal storms, um, as well as what some of the recent literature has suggested, which is that um, some of the storm tracks may actually start to shift northwards, away from the Gulf Coast and towards the Atlantic seaboard. Now, of these, sea level, sea level rise is probably the, the, the most substantial challenge nationwide. Um, this is a graph taken from um, a recent uh, survey of the literature um, uh, conducted by NOAA. Um, and what you can see here is that um, over the last 100 years, we've had about 8 inches of sea level rise, um, going back to 1900. Um, that's continuing at a rate of about an inch and a quarter per decade. 
And current projections, looking at the climate, uh, climate literature, suggest that we're going to see between, um, the more likely estimate is between one and four additional feet of sea level rise by 2100. Um, there are also some estimates, um, although thought of as less likely, um, that more rapid melting of the glaciers could lead to sea levels as high as, as, high as six feet or more above uh, current levels um, in, in those scenarios. So given these risks and the, the complexity and uncertainty of the problem, um, we really see that comprehensive, um, long-term coastal adaptation is planning is needed um, for uh, many areas of the coast in order to uh, you know, better protect coastal residents and make them more resilient in the long term. So this isn't necessarily a new problem, and in particular it's one that Louisiana has faced in the recent past. Um, after the devastating hurricane season in 2005, which obviously with Hurricanes Katrina and Rita um, cost thousands of lives, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in damage, um, this really spurred the state into action in 2005. And um, they really felt that they could, they could no longer sort of keep going with the piecemeal planning that they had done previously. And as a result, they undertook a comprehensive master planning effort uh, designed to reduce risk and to some, meet some other objectives. And, and that's what I'm going to describe to you today. Now, in addition to this coastal flooding problem, Louisiana also has a major land loss problem. Louisiana is home to one of the largest and most productive coastal ecosystems in the world, um, but over the last century they've been losing um, this resource. In particular, they've lost 1,900 square miles of coastal land over the last 80 years. Uh, for perspective, that's like losing all of metropolitan Los Angeles about four times over. Um, and the rate is about one football field of land loss every 45 minutes. Uh, the projections suggest that if no additional action are take, were taken, um, this land loss would continue, with between 800 and 1,800 additional square miles uh, of land loss um, uh, over the next 50 years. Now, this is due to uh, the combined effects of sea level rise, um, uh, land subsidence, or literally the land compacting and sinking in this coastal region. And finally, it's due to the way that the Mississippi River has been managed, um, where the river has been uh, you know, channeled and levied and cut off from these wetland areas so that what used to formerly, formerly build land in this area uh, no longer happens and instead there's land loss. This map here shows all the areas of coastal Louisiana that could convert to open water over the next 50 years in one of those scenarios I mentioned. So as I said, Louisiana has been aware of this challenge for quite some time, um, but they really struggled um, in, in the years prior to Hurricanes Katrina and Rita to address it at a comprehensive level. There were several key challenges. First, um, there have been literally hundreds of different types of projects proposed uh, to either um, help uh, restore the coast or reduce risk in the area. Um, many of them are very expensive, um, and they could often conflict. In addition, um, balancing between different objectives for the coast, including maintaining or developing a working coastline, uh, protecting or sustaining the coastal ecosystem, and reducing risk to communities, um, these are all uh, you know, diverse and potentially conflicting goals. They have substantial uncertainty about what's going to happen in the future, uh, given sea level rise and other key factors. And finally, they, they really lacked the science um, and, and, and the, 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 the knowledge needed to understand how the coast works together as a system, and as a result, how when they started to make changes, how those projects could benefit the coast as a whole. So as a result, um, as I said, after 2005, they started a comprehensive master planning effort, which really culminated last year in their 2012 Comprehensive Master Plan for a Sustainable Coast. This plan is designed to simultaneously address the land loss and risk reduction challenges that I just described, 
and it includes several key innovations, including a, a new systems modeling approach uh, to better understand how the coast works together as a system and project what future changes could look like, as well as a new objective planning framework uh, designed to um, identify effective investments for the coast and explicitly uh, note trade-offs. And I'll get into each of these in a moment. So <clears throat> first I wanted to just give you a sense of the type of project that's been pro proposed for coastal Louisiana. In terms of coastal restoration, um, projects are typically designed to either reduce the rate of land loss, build new land, or otherwise reconnect and restore coastal processes. In particular, there's two types of projects commonly um, used for building land in the region. Uh, one of them um, is literally to pipe sediment directly into the marsh. And you can see here, here's a pipe literally that's just blowing sediment out into the marsh to create new marshland. Um, this process is called mechanical marsh creation, and it can be very expensive. It typically costs between fifty dollars and $200,000 per acre. The other main type considered for coastal Louisiana um, are known as river diversions. And this is basically um, building diversion gates, um, as one of the example here, uh, into the levees on the Mississippi River or one of its distributaries. And um, opening those gates during um, flood, flood water or, or high flow periods in order to essentially reconnect the river um, back to the floodplain and allow natural flood, um, land building to occur when there's a lot of sediment in the river to wash out. Again, this can vary greatly in cost depending on the uh, location and size. Now, in terms of reducing risk, there are also two sort of main goals. Uh, one uh, is to, uh, in some places, prevent flooding from occurring. And in, in others, it's to reduce the damage that can occur um, if, a, if a flood um, actually happens. Now, for the former, um, typically uh, large public infrastructure investments are used to prevent floods from occurring in the first place. Uh, this uh, visual example here is actually from New Orleans. And here we have uh, an example showing uh, basically levees. Uh, this is a levee interconnecting here. Um, a gate system with some pumps in it. And then there's a, actually a canal behind that feeds those pumps and, and pumps out the interior of this area. But essentially, this is uh, what's sometimes referred to as structural risk reduction. And it's designed to use these levees, flood walls, gates, and pumps to more or less keep water out. Um, again, this can vary a lot in cost depending on the size, size and scale. Um, but for perspective, um, the Corps of Engineers spent about $15 billion um, after Hurricane Katrina in 2005 to repair and upgrade that system. Now, the other main type is to reduce damage in the event a flood occurs. Um, this is sometimes referred to as non-structural risk reduction, and this is confusing because it's still a structure, um, but it's non-structural because it's not large public infrastructure. And these are investments designed instead to promote local resilience and make individual structures less susceptible to flood damage. And it can include, as you can see here, um, elevating homes, floodproofing of homes or businesses, um, or actually acquiring and or relocating structures in very high-risk areas. Um, and just for perspective, this typically costs about forty-six dollars to $170,000 um, to uh, elevate an existing 1,600-square-foot home. So given this diversity of projects that were proposed and the state's need to develop this comprehensive plan, um, they approached RAND about three years ago um, to help uh, develop an approach um, that would take all these factors into account. And in particular, we did two things. First, uh, we developed a new model of hurricane flood risk looking out long term that's designed to bring in a lot of the uncertainties that haven't previously been addressed. And second, we developed a comprehensive planning framework and a planning tool to help prioritize investments. 
Now, I won't go into the details of the model, <clears throat> but overall, what we found using this uh, flood risk model <clears throat> is that over time, we're seeing substantial increases in both um, flood depths and flood damage um, across the coast if no additional action is taken. Uh, in particular, what you're seeing here is just an example map showing one scenario of flood risk 50 years from now uh, from an event with a 1% annual chance of occurring. And what you can see is that for most areas of the coast, uh, this is in yellow, um, you see uh, at least one to five feet of flooding, and the darker shades show deeper flooding, which can be upwards of 25 feet. This is also true in terms of damage. Uh, we evaluated damage in terms of expected or average annual damage um, across the Louisiana coast, um, looking at current conditions and also looking at two future scenarios, reflecting different assumptions about sea level rise, uh, rates of land subsidence, and other key drivers uh, for the area. What we found is that um, under current conditions, uh, average annual damage across coastal Louisiana is about $2.2 billion, and this is in constant $2010. If we look out 50 years under a moderate scenario, reflecting moderate assumptions about, uh, in particular, sea level rise, um, this damage triples. So it's about $7.2 billion 50 years from now um, in, in this moderate scenario. If we look in a less optimistic scenario, it could increase almost tenfold if no additional action is taken. So we used, actually let me take a step back here for a minute. We used these models, and, and the risk, risk assessment model was one of actually seven different um, systems models used to understand the coast um, together as, as a system. And we used these models to evaluate a future without action as well as a series of different projects that were proposed for the coast. And we literally looked at hundreds of different projects. And all of that information was consolidated and brought into the next step, um, which was uh, this planning framework and planning tool. The planning tool um, is a custom-designed software tool that RAND developed for Louisiana uh, that's designed to take all this information and do three things. First, uh, it, it compares and ranks the individual pro projects according to uh, cost-effectiveness. Second, it helps select different combinations of these projects for potential strategies, coast-wide strategies. And finally, it uses um, a series of interactive visualizations um, to, show, to help show uh, decision makers and stakeholders in the region um, key trade-offs to support decision making in real time. So overall, um, what we did with the planning tool um, was compare hundreds of different uh, restoration and risk reduction projects. Um, just to give you a sense, and I'm sorry if the symbols are a little small here, um, we looked at 43 river, different river diversion projects, which are the little blue stars there, over 100 marsh creation projects, about 100 other restoration project types, 34 structural risk reduction, and over 100 communities that were considered for additional non-structural risk reduction investment. Now, of course, implementing all of these would be very expensive. It would cost over $200 billion dollars. And many of these projects could actually have duplicative um, you know, outcomes, or they could directly conflict. So what we did with the planning tool instead um, was try to select combinations of these projects, a subset, um, that would best maximize both land building and risk reduction. It does this while also trying to balance across other objectives, including um, you know, uh, maintaining coastal habitats, uh, support for uh, navigation along the river, um, as well as uh, providing risk reduction for uh, um, important historic or cultural heritage sites. And finally, it takes into account constraints. So um, the tool is able to account for what different levels of funding might be available to support this plan, 
Um, it, 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 can, it can constrain these types of river diversions to ensure that there's adequate flow in the river for navigation. And finally, um, given the amount of land building that needs to occur in the region, um, the, it, can, it, it can take into account what amount of sediment might be available from external sources to build land sustainably and not just take sediment from you know, one part of the coast to the other. So if we use this planning tool and just ask the question, you know, which projects should the state choose to maximize risk reduction in land building uh, using a $50 billion budget, um, this is what we, we found with using this tool. Um, as you can see, uh, there are uh, projects from each different project type that were selected, and there's a fairly good balance of these projects in different areas of the coast. Now, what we found just using this initial um, approach is that relative to a future of that action, we could see substantial land building. So here what you're looking at is a graph showing the total uh, land in the coastal study area over a 50-year span in that moderate um, future scenario. So you can see you know, declining land all the way throughout that process, uh, losing about, you know, that, about 800 square miles of land in total. With that initial alternative that I just showed you previously in place, um, this rate of land loss would be substantially slowed and actually eventually would be reversed, and we would see land building um, in, in the future decades. Now, there are trade-offs involved with this, of course. Um, <clears throat> if we were to do it as is, oh, excuse me, I'll take a step back here. Um, first, um, one thing to note is that um, you know, not everything is going to decline in the future if no action is taken. <clears throat> so if we have, uh, for example, saltwater species, um, like shrimp or oysters, um, they actually might do a little bit better uh, in that future because a lot of areas that are currently sort of freshwater are going to become more ocean habitat and there might actually be more room for them. And this is represented sort of notionally here uh, with um, this, this increasing uh, you know, line in a future of that action for the saltwater habitat. If we were to do that initial maximized land building strategy, which includes a whole a number of river diversions, um, this habitat would decline. And the reason is because now we're putting a whole bunch of freshwater into these areas, and uh, areas that were fresh, or, uh, saltwater, uh, you know, saltwater habitats would no longer be, and we would lose some of that habitat. So this represents a potential trade-off, and what the tools allow us to do is sort of loop back and say, okay, well, what if we wanted to try to maximize land building, but without including some of these very large river diversion projects? Um, so again, we were able to do this almost in real time, come back, look at the tool, and say, let's do the same thing, but now we won't include any river diversions. And as you can see, here's the results of that, where now we don't have river diversions, and the investment is spread across other types of projects. Now, doing that, we could substantially reduce uh, the, the impact on saltwater habitats. But if we were to do that, we also wouldn't get the land building that we saw previously. So now we get, we get land, land outcomes that are better than what we saw in a future without action, um, but not necessarily sustainable in the long term. So this is actually just one example of many different types of trade-offs that were looked at um, throughout the planning process. And this one was resolved in particular by including some river diversion projects um, but not including some of the largest river diversion projects that might have a su substantial impact on these saltwater habitats. So as I said, this is just an example of, of the kind of, of analysis we were able to do with this planning process. And what happened over a, a very intensive three to six month span is that uh, Rand used uh, the planning tool to formulate a, a group of projects based on all that information about project benefits from these models. Um, we provided a series of interactive visualizations which then went to a core planning team at the state of Louisiana, as well as a team of stakeholders that they, they'd assembled over a several year period. 
Um, they used this information um, to discuss these key trade-offs in real time. And then they would go back to the RAND team and say, okay, well, we want to see a slightly different set of constraints. Or, you know, we want to look at a different uh, a, a budget level. We want to balance these things a little bit differently. And once again, we were able to loop back through, provide an alternate plan that met those objectives, um, loop through this many, many times over, over a three to six month span, and eventually settle on the final master plan. So <clears throat> this process turned out to be very successful and very effective for allowing Louisiana to reach a comprehensive uh, plan. Um, the, the Louisiana master plan is a 50-year, $50, $50 billion plan um, that was actually passed unanimously by the Louisiana legislature in May of 2012, and it's currently starting implementation. The plan includes about $30 billion of investment in uh, restoration projects, including marsh creation, river diversions, and other types of restoration, as well as about $20, $21 billion called for in risk reduction investments, and these are balanced evenly across structural and non-structural risk reduction. One important note here is um, thinking about this relative to the past. If you were to look at investments in uh, coastal Louisiana in infrastructure um, prior to, 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 to today, you would see that this red wedge um, dominates. Um, typically, most of the investment has been in levees. <clears throat> and the scale of investment called for in these restoration projects, as well as in non-structural risk reduction, is really unprecedented for coastal Louisiana. And <clears throat> it could be very effective. Uh, once again, going back to our moderate future scenario, um, now here we're looking at a graph showing uh, the rate of land change on a decade-by-decade -decade basis in, the, in terms of the change in land area. And what we find is that the master plan could really stop or reverse this coastal land loss. In this scenario, we actually do see increasing land for the first time in those latter two decades. This is also true in terms of flood risk reduction. Um, across both the moderate and less optimistic scenarios, with the master plan in place, we're able to substantially reduce risk um, relative to, and this is risk in, ter in terms of damage, um, um, relative to a future without action, and at least maintain or um, uh, you know, reduce risk relative to current levels. So <clears throat> overall, um, what we found through this process is that it allowed Louisiana to take a step forward in terms of comprehensive planning, adaptation planning, that they were, they were not able to do before. Um, and, and really to make some difficult choices about how the coast was going to be sustained in the future and, and, and you know, basically picking amongst what would be done. So in particular, you know, they had a lot of uncertainty and a very complex coastal system. And through this process, they were able to gather an enormous amount of scientific information about future risks and benefits um, to support this kind of planning. And that's information that they're, they're going to continue to use for years and decades to come. Now, given what I mentioned before, the challenge of hundreds of different um, proposed projects and everybody's pet project in each parish, um, this allowed them to provide an objective way um, to prioritize investments and just note that not all areas of the coast were going to receive the same level of investment or, or basically have their pet project funded. And finally, given the diversity of stakeholder interests, as I mentioned before, um, this actually provided them a, a very open and um, science-based process um, and really a non-political process designed to help them resolve trade-offs. Now, of course, not all areas of the coast are going to be saved, and not everybody came out of this plan 100% happy. Um, but this really allowed them, through this process, to bring all those views together, uh, include stakeholders, give them the, the scientific information, and eventually settle on a consensus plan. And we think that this is uh, a, a, an approach, um, both in terms of the tools and the, the planning approach applied, that has a lot of relevance for other regions. 
um, and is particularly relevant for the mid-Atlantic coastal states after Superstorm Sandy. In particular, we see a, a few key lessons coming out of this. The first is that as a proof of principle, investing in this type of comprehensive um, risk reduction strategy um, really can help protect people and infrastructure. And um, in particular, it can help to reduce post-disaster costs um, you know, after future uh, storms like Sandy. Second, again, is sort of a proof of principle. Um, this plan includes a number of things that are, are designed towards a sort of defense in depth idea, um, a multiple barriers approach to coastal risk reduction that says we shouldn't be solely reliant on levees, but instead we need a combination of efforts to make them more resilient in the event that levees you know, don't necessarily work as intended. So this plan includes substantial investments in, in restoration and, and, and um, non-structural risk reduction that does provide that defense in depth. And finally, um, what this really suggests is that given the amount of uncertainty, particularly about sea level rise for these coastal areas, um, that, that the goal for other areas of the coast should be to seek robust strategies um, that perform well regardless of what that future scenario might be. We need to invest in such a way that if sea level rise is one foot or four feet um, in, 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 over the next century, um, that these plans will work well and these invest investments will be effective. And that suggests that we need strategies that are robust um, to some of these key uncertainties. All right, well, um, that's all I have for today. Um, so I'm happy to open the floor for questions. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.